for the rest of us. At least you remembered it, bro. Um, for the rest of us, we're in a series called Sorry Not Sorry. And it's a, it's a moment where we're looking at the various times in Jesus' life where the life and ministry he had here on earth, when he said or did things that were kind of offensive. And so in modern lingo, the sorry, not sorry is, is, a, is a, like, it's an acknowledgement that I'm not sorry. I've done something that might offend you, but I'm not sorry for it. Um, so for those who are older than 40, we just used to do stuff that we knew made people sorry. We, we just didn't apologize. But for millennials, we feel like we have to say sorry, not sorry. We have to be obvious about it and say, like, I'm, I'm definitely not sorry I did that. So, but it's this moment. And, and sometimes Jesus says things that are, are like quite offensive if we're honest about how he says them and particularly in context so this morning i've called it uh, this morning's one is flipping unhappy um but you'll get there john chapter 2 we're going to read it so that you get the title um john chapter 2 we're going to read just four verses from 13 to 17 five verses um and we're going to read those uh five verses quick so john chapter 2 verses 13 to 17 when it was almost time for the jewish passover Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So just a bit of background, a bit of context as to why these things would have been in the temple. So it was required under the Old, Old Testament law for Jews to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. At least once a year they were required to go there. And so it was national holiday period. It was generally the Passover when they would all try and go there. And they would then also, part of the law was to bring your tithe to the temple. They would have to bring their offering or their sacrifice or their tithe to the main temple in Jerusalem, the big one. And, but what, what Moses also did in the law, or maybe it was God, made a provision to say, hey, if you, can't, if you live far away and you can't bring your cow all the way from Beersheba or wherever you are, I don't know how far that is from Jerusalem actually, but it's quite far. But if you, if you can't bring, like it's a, it's a long way to travel with like two coats and a pigeon and keep them alive and three cows while you get to Jerusalem. He said, change your offering for money and then come and then reverse the transaction, buy the thing, and then sacrifice it at the temple. So what the guys at the temple with the cows and the sheep and the pigeons and things were doing was they were actually being of service to the pilgrims who were coming. Same as the money changers. People would have come with all sorts of foreign money, but the temple used that particular... So they were forex traders, basically, is what they were. They were there. They were coming and saying, like, okay, so you got those coins. Those are a bit weird. We operate in these ones. But so we'll change your money for this money. And then you can use that money at the temple to pay a temple tax and all those sort of things that went on with it. So that what they were doing, the, the service they were providing was necessary and was actually kind of provided for in the Old Testament law where it said that, you know, you're going to go there and you're going to change these. So it's Passover, Jewish, like national Passover. So it's a massive, massive. So there would have been. It was filling up. Jerusalem would get to the point where it would be overflowing with people. Um, so there were a lot of people about, which means a lot of cattle, a lot of sheep, a lot of goats, a lot of um, pigeons as well. Pigeons were, were kind of made, they were part of an offering thing, but they were also for the poor. If you couldn't afford, if your family couldn't afford a whole lamb, you could substitute it with a, a pigeon if you were poor. 
Okay, so just some side notes, some context as to what Jesus gets into. Now, this moment that this event is kind of recorded in all four Gospels. Again, it's one of those unique ones that's in all four, but it's a bit different. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record it at the end of Jesus's life. So they have it at right before he gets crucified. John has it right in the beginning. Now, there's a couple of theories like were they two separate events or are the timelines just different? It could have happened twice. It, it could have quite, Jesus was there on, on multiple Passovers, but I think it's just a timeline thing. I think John's just got it at the beginning. It's a personal, there's no definite um, thing on that. So John places it right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And it's, it's amazing how in this moment, Jesus obviously sees what's going on. Something upsets him about what is happening in there. And we'll get into that just now. But he then makes a whip of cords. And that might seem like a real strange thing to do. You kind of, in that moment, you're going, hmm, not very Jesus-y of you, not very Christ-like to make something that you're going to beat people. But it was like a scourge that it would have been made, you know, like a, almost like a, a whip with multiple things. It wasn't like a bull whip, like a really long whip to crack. It was, it was more like a cat of nine tails type thing without the glass and the bones tied in it. But um, it was kind of like that. So, and just interesting, I sat down and I asked some questions. Like, so he would have walked in the temple and I said, where would he have got the cords from? It's a weird thing. Like, you know, a paracord lying around in those days. And like, how long would it have taken him to make that? And it's not exactly clear because we don't know exactly what he made. But the cords, uh, is this, the word is for cords, is the same word for bulrushes. So it's, it's a type of plant, and they would have used that plant as fodder for the animals. So it would have been kind of like what some of the farmers in, in Zululand do, is they would have used like the tops of the cane. They use that, and they gather that up, and they chuck it out, and they, they would have just chucked. And so they would have been in and amongst the livestock there, that they would have had all these bulrushes and pl- in the temple, the outer courts of the temple, in the Gentile areas of the temple. So it was right there. So Jesus probably picked it up off the floor and made it there. But it would have taken him a bit of time, even if he was... Real quick, I reckon 10 minutes at least. Probably more like half an hour to make that. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't just, he doesn't just fly off the handle when he sees something wrong that is, it is wrong. Clearly it's wrong because Jesus spoke against it and even if we don't understand what's going on, we've got to trust him. So he hasn't just flown off the handle out of anger. So this is not an unrighteous human anger. If like me, you struggle with your temper, I hope none of you do, but... I, that is the one, the one tactic that I use to control my temper is just take time. Don't react. Respond. And that's the beautiful thing about what Jesus does here. He doesn't just instantly react to what he sees that is wrong. And even if he had, it would have still been righteous anger. But don't react. Respond. So Jesus responds in a patient way. Anyway, this could have, maybe this is what they're doing in kids' ministry this morning. I don't know. Making a whip of cords. But... Um, wouldn't want to be a cow in that play but um but there are not too many pa- not too many paintings of jesus with a whip of cords turning tables the table mid-flip not too many of those of those paintings but but honestly we've got to let jesus be jesus and that's the point of this series is we don't get to decide who jesus is sorry not sorry jesus is who he is and we don't get to pick and choose which parts of his life or his teaching we get to apply to our lives and we get to acknowledge as being godly. You see, someone tried that a while ago. Thomas Jefferson. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was a third president of the United States of America. And he did a, quite a horrific thing. He took the New Testament 
And he opened it up to the Gospel of Matthew and he started reading. And anything he didn't like out of Jesus' life, he cut out. Literally, he took a razor and cut out. And he threw it away. Well, he actually cut out the parts he liked and stuck them in another book. He did like a cut. It was the original, like, what is it called? Not decoupage? Scrap. Scrapbooking. He was the original scrapbooker. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't put it on a, like an like a ostrich egg. That's decoupage. Yeah. So he's the original scrapbooker, was old Thomas Jefferson. In 1804, he published what became known as the Jefferson Bible. And it had nothing about the miraculous of Jesus' life. It, it, it took out the resurrection, took out all the miracles. It just had, it basically was the morals of Jesus is what he boiled it down to. So he cut out all of these sort of things, the hard sayings, the uncomfortable moments. He took all of that out. And this guy ended up being third president of the, Ameri- of the United States, and he's on some of their money. So he published, and, and so what it was is he couldn't reconcile parts of the story and the life of Jesus that he didn't agree with. And we mustn't do that. We've got to look at all of Jesus and go, okay, what was he doing here? What is going on in this moment that I need to learn from that Jesus was actually showing me? Interestingly, just as a side note, because we might see it immediately in our minds, in, in none of the accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, does Jesus ever strike any person? He never hits anybody. He isn't, he isn't angry to the point of being violent with people. Just as a side note, because we, we can sometimes see it that way. So apparently the, the whip, kind of two things. One, it was either for driving out the cattle. Cattle can be hard to move. If you've ever tried to move them where they don't want to go, like out the road, they're hard to move. Or it is a symbolic sign of authority. Interestingly enough. So what we do see in Jesus' actions here is there's this, this mixed prophetic declaration that Jesus has. So... Look here what the scholars say about this and, and what the Bible commentators say is there's kind of different prophetic declarations that Jesus is making that sometimes we being non-Jewish might miss. But in taking authority and in, and in kind of walking into the temple courts and determining who can and can't be there, the first thing Jesus is doing is he's going, I'm in charge of the temple. I'm the one who's going to be in charge here. He's exercising authority in a sacred space. In the place of God's presence, which is the temple in Jerusalem that was the picture of that, he is exercising authority. And we know this as well because right after the story, what we didn't read it, but from verse 18 onwards, the Jews then say to him, what sign will you give us to show us that you have the authority to do what you're doing? So they recognize that Jesus is exercising authority in that moment. He places himself effectively, because he's not part of the religious leadership of the day, he's not part of the political leadership of the day, Effectively, what he's saying and coming in and cleansing the temple is it's a picture he's saying, I am the Messiah. That's the authority I have in this moment. That's why they ask him for a sign. They know that the Messiah is going to come in the miraculous. And they say, give us a sign to show us that you have the authority. So that's the first thing Jesus is showing is that he is in charge of the temple. The second thing, and and for me, this is the biggest one that I see and the one that resonates most with, with what I could kind of glean out of this is that Jesus is declaring that God is against exploitation of people. No matter what it is that we are called to do, it can never be at the exploitation or at the expense of other people. You see, the money changers and the livestock sellers and the bird feeders, they were all, they they were performing a function. But what happened is that at Passover time, they knew they had a corner market. They sold the, the 
most unblemished lambs. They sold the right-sized doves. And, and so they knew they had a corner that was convenient. They were right at the market. It was, it was prime position to be. And they knew that they had a captive audience. And so what they would do is they would hike the prices. It's kind of like in-season and out-of-season rates on livestock is what they were doing. And Passover was extra high season. You had to have lots of RCI points to get there. But they were exploiting other people's need. And, and most of the time, the poor. They were exploiting the poorest of the nation who would come to worship God. So Jesus here is saying that he's, he's, he's expressing his passion for not taking advantage of others. Yeah, when we read, if you read the Bible, one of the overarching kind of golden threads that runs through is care for the lost, the broken, the poor, the alien, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, those who are the least in society. That is God's heart, is to care for them, is to lift them up and to protect them. And sometimes we miss that because we want to be big and flashy and showy. I want to, uh, as this next quote, I think it's Anne Daniel, Dudley Daniel's wife, but I'm not 100% sure, but I, I'm sure, uh, I'm like 90% sure it was, it was her who said it, but we're going to give it to her anyway. And she said, when the ritual of the temple becomes more important than the pain of the people, we have lost the heart of God. Let's say it again. When the ritual of the temple, so in other words, what we do, what we need to get done, the, the, the checkbox things, the, the, becomes more important than the pain of the people, we have lost the heart of God. Jesus comes against those who have inwardly allowed a mercenary heart to take hold. He comes against those who are in it for self-gain. Now, if that was their business, there's nothing wrong with making a profit. Everybody needs to eat. That is your business. That's what you need to do. There's nothing wrong with charging people so that you can also live. But what Jesus is against is the exploitation that was going on in that moment. The third thing, and it kind of ties in with the second one, but I need a third point. His, he is declaring, I'm kidding, this is slightly different. He's declaring that presence is more important than ritual. He says, it's, my house will be a house of prayer, not of sacrifice. Sacrifice was required under the Old Testament law. What they were doing was right. But Jesus, interestingly, he doesn't say, my house will be a house of of sacrifice. My father's house will be a house of prayer. It's amazing how he's not saying don't do the law, but he's saying this is the main thing. All of that other stuff is meant to facilitate this. Presence is more important than ritual. See, Jesus is going, our relationship with God is more important than our right behavior before God. And that was the point of him dying on the cross, is to say, to show us, to go, your sins are forgiven before you've done anything right. I want you in my presence before you've done all the things you need, think you need to do. We get it the wrong way around. But actually, right behavior flows out of right relationship. Right behavior flows out of right. When we get our relationship with God right, right behavior flows from that place. We don't, we don't do the right things so that we can please God. We do the right things because we have been with God. And out of that place, he says, go and do this. Go and and we kind of get the heart of God and we understand what we need to do. So in that moment, Jesus locates himself as the center point in our lives. And, 
You know, God, this, this isn't something, it shouldn't have been something new for the Jews. A few hundred years before Isaiah had wrote this, I'll read it to you. It's 58, verse 2 to 7. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation. This is kind of God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. If they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Kind of people raging against God. And then God replies, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice. To untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Using the example of fasting, which was one of the things, again, that was a, a good religious activity. It was a good right behavior. It helps us to, fasting has a good proper place in our lives and in our spiritual formation with God. But what God is saying is you, you're doing fasting wrong. That right behavior, you're doing it with the wrong heart. Because it has no, there is no outflow into your life of the heart of God in those moments. You can't just put this thing on the outside and expect to be, receive the blessing of God. God says, I'm after your heart. I want to change you. I want to transform you from the inside. I don't want just an outward. I don't want you just to obey, suffer through the day of not eating, if it's fasting or whatever it is. And still get, behave the same. That's not what the point of it is. He's saying, I want this to look like some change. I want this. The point of this is so that you will be changed. And in this context, so that you will not exploit the poor. So that you will properly care for the least of these in a the society. That is the point of what I'm doing here. We can never exploit others and call it service to God. It just doesn't make sense. So, in closing... As with all of these difficult, sorry, not sorry moments with Jesus, our response has got to be, number one, to allow Jesus to be Jesus. We can't pick and choose what we do and don't like. And there's no need to get embarrassed about these things. And someone says, yeah, but Jesus is such a good man, but he turned over tables and he, thinks, and he got angry and he made a whip. And you go, yeah, yeah, but that's because you're judging good by your standards. When you understand that Jesus was saying, I want you to stop exploiting the poor, is that not good? Is he not still good in doing that? Even though he's flipping unhappy? Do you get it now at the tables? Okay. Just thought I'd explain it. It wasn't just me. It wasn't just, I didn't want to just be crash. I, uh, I ached over the title a little bit. But anyway, so the questions. Am I picking? Uh, uh, so I think in, in this moment... Uh, I want to leave us with some internal reflection. I know it's not necessarily the best way to do it, but this is what I felt. So it's to leave us with some, some questions for internal reflection in our walk with Jesus in these sorry, not sorry moments. And, and so the first one is, am I picking the Jesus, picking and choosing the Jesus I want to follow? If you will have Jesus on your terms, then you'll have no Jesus at all. I think it was Papa. I think I can't remember. Couldn't find it. 
But if you will have Jesus on your terms, it's not the Jesus of the Bible that you've got. Is he part of my life? In other words, am I inviting Jesus into moments in my life and into certain areas? Or is everything in my life subordinated to the will of Jesus? Is everything in my life subordinated to his presence and his leading and his guiding? Is it the Americanized Jesus that I follow? Man, I think some of us have drunk that Kool-Aid far too much. And it's a hard thing to get rid of because we've, we've believed it for the last century or so. That Jesus is here to make you healthy, wealthy and wise. He'll fulfill all the desires of your life if you'll just stop swearing and behave nicely. Don't kick the dog so often and Jesus will bless you. See, we get this like works mentality where we, we fit Jesus into the American dream of if I do enough, I'm going to eventually get enough. And like I'll do the same with Jesus. He's not like that. Am I following the Americanized Jesus or the Bible one? So that's the first one. Am I picking and choosing the Jesus I want to follow? The second question, and this one is hard for internal reflection, is am I exploiting others in my life? Are there areas of my life where I am exploiting others, other people? In what I do, in what I say. Because honestly, our actions and our serving and our things mean nothing if we're getting the basics wrong. So Paul writes, when he writes about love in 1 Corinthians, and he says, you can do whatever you like, you can do the most grand things, but if you, if you don't have that love of God in your heart, they're just a resounding God and they mean nothing. Just it, it has no lasting impact. Are we helping in a way that hurts sometimes? Are we exploiting others for our own benefit? Even in serving, we might have... And, and, and I used, we, Previously, we ran some work up into Africa through the church, mission stuff, and we had a, a lot of guys that would want to come along and they'd come with their 4x4s four and they wanted, we would go up to Malawi and they're like, yeah, how many days are we spending at the lake? We're not going to the lake. Yes, but we're only like 130 kilometers away. From, we're not going to the lake, buddy. But we can do the teaching and we're not going to the lake. You don't, I'm not sure like how else to say this. And it was, it's not a bad thing. It's not wrong to go to the lake in Malawi. There's nothing wrong with that. But what we, what we found that people were doing is they were exploiting the moment of going to serve others so that they could do their own thing. Man, it's sad. They, want, they had this own desire for overlanding and safariing and we want to... Are we exploiting others? Third question for internal reflection. This is real light and encouraging this morning. If you came here for a word of power for the hour, I'm sorry. Third question. Am I focused on nurturing the presence of God in my life? Am I focused on nurturing the presence of God? Practicing things like spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, prayer, silence and solitude, fasting, generosity, having a meal together. Having a meal together is a spiritual discipline. We'll get that. We'll do a whole series on meals. But it is. That's why we, that's why we have fellowship often. That's why we do tea and coffee often. So that we can facilitate being together. It can be a spiritual discipline. Fasting as well. Going with that. Being generous. Are we practicing disciplines? Are we nurturing the presence of God? You see, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing because relationships are difficult. I don't know if you've noticed. But relationships can be difficult. We get out what we put in. Someone the other day said, Yo, you don't call very often. I said, you know, it, it, phones work both ways. You, you also got my number. We get out what we put in. And I know I'm lazy and I'm trying to be better as a friend, but it's... Sorry, Dave. But um, it's, it wasn't Dave. I'm kidding. It wasn't, 
It wasn't Dave. But we get out what we put in. And then sometimes we just, like we don't have the energy to do it. But honestly, friends, we've got to nurture the presence of God in our lives. Not because God needs any nurturing. Not because he wants to be, he's not needy in that regard. But it's simply just a principle that what we get, we get out what we put in. Are we nurturing the presence of God in our lives? Dov, won't you come up and play, buddy? I felt that um, for us there needs to be just a, a moment of quiet. So we're just going to take three minutes while Dave plays. Um, and, and just consider, not those questions I've given you, those are for in the week reflection. But just for, for you this morning, what things, what tables are there in your life that Jesus needs to overturn? What cattle is there that he needs to drive out of the temple area? You see, part of the problem is that all of that stuff was crowding out. It was in the, it was in the Gentiles area of the temple, so it was in the, the, like the outer courts. And, and it would have been, it would have also almost, there was a practical thing of like, it was difficult then for people to worship God with cows and things, and like all this stuff going on. And the people who were supposedly furthest from God would have had the most difficult time entering into the presence of God. And so what do we need to remove out of our lives so that we can enjoy the presence of God? That's part of what Jesus did. So that the Gentiles could worship God without cattle bumping them and doves cooing. And all the doves cooing might have been pretty helpful. But without all the other stuff around them, what could they have? What, what, what tables does Jesus need to overturn in your life today? So just take a, a few moments now and allow God to maybe flip some tables.